Hello, everybody. This is Bob from Cascadia. I'm joined by uh, Matt from the Southland. We're here to talk Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine. We're covering the uh, TV movie of Babylon 5, uh, The Gathering, No Juggalos Need Apply. And uh, we're covering the pilot for DS9, which is a two-parter uh, called Emissary. Uh, the Gathering premiered on uh, the 22nd of February, 1993, and uh, Emissary appeared or premiered rather in uh january 3rd 1993 and we're gonna go a little few bits on uh babylon 5 the gathering then we'll cover a few bits on uh ds9 emissary then we'll uh talk about both together what they can kind of tell us about serialized tv what they can tell us about the 90s and what they can tell us about that micro genre of 90s sci-fi tv on a space station all right so before I throw it over to my good friend, Matt, uh, I'll give you a quick rundown of Babylon 5, The Gathering. It takes place on Babylon 5, which is a space station that's constructed as a neutral negotiation point. Um, it's built to service mainly the five uh, big empires in this region of the galaxy. So you've got the Minbari Federation, the Vorlon Empire, the Centauri Republic, the Earth Alliance, and the Narn Regime. Um, the Vorlon Empire is a mysterious and reclusive uh, empire. Uh, the humans and the other species don't seem to really know very much at all about them. And uh, they're sending their ambassador, who's the last ambassador of the five great powers to arrive on Babylon 5. When he arrives, there's an assassination attempt that frames the commander of uh, the station, Jeffrey Sinclair. And so Sinclair and his security chief, Michael Garibaldi, have to work to find the possibly undead assassin. Uh, assassin. Meanwhile, the uh, station executive officer, Laurel Takashima, and uh, the doctor, Ben Kyle, and the newly arrived telepath, Lyda Alexander, are working to save Kasha's life, despite their barriers of the lack of knowledge about Vorlon biology. Um, and so, yeah, that's basically uh, Babylon 5, The Gathering. What'd you make of it, Matt? Yeah, you pretty much summed it up exactly how I remember it. Really, uh, Really enjoyed the episode. Originally, when we started the podcast, you had mentioned that I could probably just skip the TV movie and go on into the regular series. After watching the, the first episode of the regular run and watching the pilot, I'm actually more impressed by the pilot. Some people will disagree with that, but I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. What do you think impressed you more about it? I like the way the characters are introduced uh, is more straightforward, I think, in the TV movie. Uh, it was... I really got into the whole mystery of who poisoned who poisoned Kosh. That part kind of kept me wanting to watch more. Whereas with the first episode of the regular series, it's just there wasn't really that mystery element to it necessarily. Uh, I will say that some of the acting was not as not as good. You can tell that's probably why a lot of these people didn't make it back to the, the regular run um, with yeah, just the TV I mean, movie. I I did a little research on like their Wikipedia pages, and I mean the story as reported on Wikipedia seemed, and I think also on like the Project Babylon wiki, which is like the specialized Babylon Five wiki. It seemed to be like the story there was more that the actors declined coming back for the show rather than they they decided they weren't kind of up to snuff. But I mean, who knows? That could be. Yeah, we, we, we know that. that real, we know that. Yeah, we know what that really means. They were asked to resign. You know, like. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, don't, don't know I, don't, sure. I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, 
you know, ni- 90s science fiction TV was certainly a, was certainly a sort of ghetto um in 1993 and so you know if you had an out and i mean i'd also i think i'm a little bit more sympathetic to you than uh than you for some of the performances not because they're great a lot of them are not great but i do think like it's really hard to act well in a pilot of a 90s sci-fi show like there's just a lot of exposition a lot of makeup it's not if you're if you're not an actor who traditionally works in those sort of things, that's a lot of new hurdles. The writing often isn't great. There's a lot of chunky exposition. And I mean, like, I think probably the person who gives the worst performance is Takashima. And yes, you know, we can agree. look at her though. Uh just I was that last year when she was a major character in Star Trek Picard as Commodore O. And I, I thought she did a great job in that. She, she she did a fantastic job. I had no clue that was actually her uh until you know, checking out uh, internet uh, IMBD and seeing that, oh, okay, she's been in some other things. She's actually been in several sci-fi shows. So, I mean, I guess she got better as time went on. Maybe this yeah, yeah, maybe roles. she got better. I mean, maybe the, maybe the yeah. writing got better for her. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a lot. That, that's true. So, okay, so if, she's your, if she is your uh, weakest performance, who would you say would be your strongest? I don't necessarily think um, the actor playing Dr. Kyle is a great actor or or let me rephrase that i think he's probably a pretty good actor but i don't think he necessarily does a great job in the context of the show if that makes sense his his style is a little too theatrical and a little too arch it feels a little off but i still i really enjoyed watching him i really enjoyed his um accent i think he's a senegalese I enjoyed his delivery. I don't think it was a great fit for the show, but I thought he was a really interesting actor. And I was reading up on him, and he was apparently uh, really big in the British theater circuit in the seventies. Oh, okay. Yeah, like they were even saying that he was like the the British or English um, Sidney Poitier, because even though he's originally from, do you think this was probably? Did, did, I don't think he did much after this though. So this was probably like one of his last roles, if I'm not mistaken. Well, really? I think he specifically didn't come back due to health reasons. Yeah. Uh, Whereas the others, it sounded like, you know, if you, if you believe the the press, it sounded like, you know, they had, they had other opportunities, but it, for him, it was apparently, it was framed as like health reasons. Cause yeah, he does, he doesn't do a whole lot after this. I have to say that I probably think the strongest, the strongest performance is from Jakar. I really enjoyed just the, there's somewhat of like a bravado to him that I liked. And he, to me, he is more of a theatrical actor. And it says, I don't, I, I'll be honest. I don't know the actor's name. I have no clue. I'll look it up in a minute, but I just I tended to like the way he acted and the way he was able to he handled all the situations and the way he responded to all the different characters and he had a lot more screen time with the character with almost every he had screen time with every character on the station I don't know if you caught on to that yeah yeah I would say probably if you're if you're going to talk about like not just who I liked but who I thought was best in context I think you're right that you probably have to say Jakar and also the actor playing Londo probably do the best job yes yes Londo's really yeah I mean he he was. Yeah. He's a perfect fit for that. Especially Londo's monologues to Garibaldi about like the kind of fall from glory of the Centauri Republic and how, you know, they're a tourist attraction. My God, man, open nine to five earth time. It's such <laughs> good delivery. Um, that, but yeah. that said, I think it's like, it's real. there's a really marked contrast between like the sort of awesome um, lines that Jakar and Wando get to deliver when you kind of compare like the sort of dreary plot heavy exposition that actor, the actors playing Takashima and Kyle had to do. So in a way, it's almost a kind of unfair comparison. Right. It's, it's in the writing and the dialogue piece. Correct. Yeah. You're hundred percent right there. So let's just kind of maybe talk about 
some of the, the plot elements that we wanted to point out, some things sure, we noted. Sure. Let's talk about uh, the encounter with, uh, you know, after Kosh is poisoned, Kyle and Lida, Lida decide to, you know, they have to get into the suit somehow to try to save him. And we notice that their, their faces are bathed in this light. What did you think of that? Like, what is, was, that, was yeah. that weird to you or? Well, it, my first thought was it was actually a ripoff of uh, Pulp Fiction, which it oh, could yeah. be because Pulp Fiction comes um, a year later in 1994. But it's that motif of in Pulp, in Pulp Fiction, they open a box and then there's a glow up on, you know, John Travolta and Sam Jackson's faces as they look into the box or in this case, a glow on uh, Dr. Kyle and Lida's faces. And yeah, it's, it's a sort of interesting technique. I, it was also famously used in a 1950s uh, film, Kiss Me Deadly. Um, that's like a private eye thing where a guy's chasing chasing after this MacGuffin and it's this box that, you know, when you open it, it glows. Although I think it's some sort of, if I remember right, it's been years since I've seen Kiss Me Deadly. I think it's some sort of like uh, visible uh, material in that noir. It's not mysterious. Was it, was it also used in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Or am I just thinking, I'm thinking of that differently in my head? It's been so long that uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I think we know what we're seeing in Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? We're seeing the Ark of the Covenant, but I think maybe right. they do use that shot of like you're seeing the glow, like hit the Nazis. You're not like seeing yes. what the Nazis are seeing. Pointing out when we were talking before that it has this kind of like interesting blend of like on the one hand, Dr. Kyle is horrified by what he sees. But on the other hand, it's almost like this like religious experience. He he says something to the effect of like everything has changed now that I've looked upon a Vorlon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you know, prior to that though, before they actually uh, you know go into the suit, he's talking about if you look at a uh, Vorlon without their suit on, it's like looking at Medusa, you'll turn to stone. Which I, I mean, even though the Vorlon are they're supposed to be like the oldest race, correct? Um, I think mistaken. the Minbari are supposed to be the oldest race. Like that, that's explicitly called out when Jakar and um, and Delenn are having that conversation in her quarters. But I think the Vorlon are the second oldest. I, I was trying to be very cautious because, as uh, listeners may know, you you've only seen a handful of season one, and I've only yeah, seen, I haven't seen much. Yeah, right. and I've only seen a handful of episodes into season two. So I was trying to read around on Project Babylon without spoiling myself. And my impression, which might be mistaken, but my impression is that, that the age of the different species goes Mimbari, Vorlon, Centauri, Human, Narn. That makes sense. Yeah, I just I, I guess they are the most mysterious though. I mean they don't they don't yeah, know about yeah. them. And it, and seems, I, I don't, it seems like the Minbari may know a little more about them. There's that kind of scene where Delenn like passes the information to Sinclair. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we never. I don't know if that's ever really paid off in what I've seen. I don't. I don't know that we ever know like what the men, what the Minbari have on the Vorlon, if to to the extent they have anything. So one um, other point I wanted to make about uh, that was, it, it's kind of well known that the main writer of Babylon Five, uh, Straczynski, is largely influenced by like prior science fiction and fantasy. And granted, like the Medusa comes up a lot, but one thing I did want to flag, if people have never read it, there's a really amazing story from uh, 1933 called Chambleau by Catherine Moore. It uh, ran in Weird Tales, which was the same pulp that like published Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, things like that. And 
it's a story that's set in like the solar system and it's kind of a space western and you've got a kind of Han Solo-ish roguish hero going around in a, a frontier town on Mars and he gets involved with this vampiric alien uh called the Chamblow. and then like the one of the revelations of the story is that like the Chamblow are this ancient species who visited earth in the you know the annals of prehistory and so they're the origin for the medusa so even though jms wouldn't have had to go to that story for the medusa influence i just thought it was kind of a cool connection and i, I really love that story uh Chamblow. i teach it whenever i can do you think the vorlon is uh is based on anything or cautious based on anything like specifically in literature like uh, the whole look the look of him and like anything you can think of nothing nothing comes to mind i know i know, I know the the encounter suit reads as snake-like to you but it, it doesn't yeah. so much to me I, I would say and maybe this kind of ties in with what we were saying about the vorlon and the minbari's uh you know kind of agedness is that it's interesting and not to jump ahead to Deep Space Nine, but in general, like the universe of Babylon 5 feels a lot more Lovecraftian than the universe of Star Trek, which is to say, you know, if people aren't familiar with H.P. Lovecraft, it's these horror fictions about like cosmic beings who are older than time and who are very either hostile to humans or just so above humans as to be indifferent to us. And you get a little of that, I think, from like the, the age and the mystery of the Minbari and the Vorlon. And in the Star Trek universe, I don't think you tend to have uh, alien species quite like that. You might have like godlike uh, aliens like the Q or like we're going to see the prophets in the pilot emissary. But that seems to be you don't really see like a, a civilization like the Klingons or the Romulans be presented in such a quite such a mysterious way. So um, in the uh, pilot uh, emissary for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is again from early January 1993, uh, we have widower Ben Sisko and his son Jake arriving at the former Cardassian mining station Deep Space Nine, which is an orbit of the planet Bajor, a planet which the Cardassian Union has just withdrawn from after 60 years of pretty harsh occupation. Uh, Cisco takes command of DS9 and he and his staff have to balance many problems. The station was wrecked by the Cardassians before their departure. Uh, they're unfamiliar with the Cardassian technology of the station. Bajor itself is on the verge of civil war and its provisional government is very unstable. Um, Scran J. Ducat, the former ruler of Bajor, a Cardassian, uh, a Cardassian military leader has returned. Uh, he and Cisco are both investigating the mystery involving Bajoran religious artifacts. And uh, probably uh, most immediately and vividly, Cisco is having to report to the man who killed his wife in the Battle of Wolf 359, uh, Jean-Luc Card, who at the time had been assimilated by the Borg. So what'd you make of an uh, emissary for what was probably like the 10th time both of us have watched it? Strangely though, uh, even though all that, all the stuff you just mentioned sounds kind of a, a little convoluted, like there's a lot going on. I'm able to, I was able to follow emissary a lot easier uh, than I was the, the gathering. Why do you I, think that is? Maybe it's just the way that the, the storyline or the pacing. I don't know. I was able to watch it and I'm able the, the pacing to me though is different between the two shows. I think that emissary to me at least seemed like it was at a slower pace than gathering. DS9 always I always had like a place in my heart. I just love the characters. And this is our first time meeting these characters. Even though I kind of already know where we're going with DS9, because I've I've seen just about all the seasons and all the episodes. I'm really glad we're going back and looking at it and having 
something to compare it to that I've never, I, I haven't, I really know nothing about. I mean, I don't know much about yeah. Avalon Live at all. So being able to look at the two and knowing it's the same, they were released around the same time, have similar concepts, similar ideas, similar themes. Just being able to look at that and make a, a, a comparison. One, one other thing I want, if I could cut in there, I think one right reason that Emissary might be easier to follow is I think there's just a much stronger use of Cisco as a central character than there is of Sinclair in Babylon 5. Like the, It seems like the perspective is much more diffuse in Babylon 5, which in some ways I like. It makes for a kind of more complicated universe where Sinclair isn't the main like thrust of everything. But uh, uh, just in terms of like introducing you to a world, it seems like almost all of the problems either directly involve Cisco in Emissary or it's, you know, his officers like dealing with his like absence, like in part two, you know, you have him abducted by the prophets in the wormhole, but you still, you're still like reckoning with Kira and the others trying to get Cisco back. So I guess there's like a kind of stronger point of view to Emissary than there is the gathering maybe. And that is very true. I mean, cause I, I when you first meet uh, Cisco, you know, in the opening scene at the, uh, the battle of Wolf 359, and he's uh, you know, trying to rescue his wife, and you already have a sense of, you know, there's a sense of urgency there, him trying to get her to safety. Uh, you know, he watches, he basically watches his wife die, and you, you feel for him, and you, that emotion's built up, so then you follow, his, you follow him to the station three years later, and you meet, the, you meet the crew with him. Whereas with Babylon 5, it's already been established, you know, everything's already kind of in place, and Sinclair is not as, uh, I don't know, when I look at the characterization of Cisco and look at the characterization of Sinclair, they're two very different leaders, very different ideals. I think that's probably why I was more, uh, I was, it was easier for me to follow Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't, I don't think like Avery Brooks gets quite enough credit. Like I think people um, will sometimes dog his acting and you can kind of see reasons for that. And I, I think we'll see plenty as we keep watching DS9. Yes, but yes. He's still sure. like, he's just, the man does like emotional scenes, like nobody's business. I mean, it's kind of arch, but it's, it's really something like that moment when like he realizes that Jennifer is dead in the, in the cold opening is, it's really it's really something to see. And I mean, it, it, it anticipates in the sixth season, um, there's a really, uh, there's a really famous episode, the name, the title of which I'm uh, blanking on in the moment, but it's the one where Cisco has the dream that he's a 1950s science fiction writer. Yeah. Towards the climax of that episode, he has to, he stages like a kind of mental breakdown and it's just like, it's hard to watch. And it's, it's, you feel, you feel like the early stages of that when you're watching him respond to Jennifer's de death during the battle. And it's just, yeah, there's there's just like a visceralness to like the emotions and the physicality of how Avery Brooks is doing the performance that you're just not, you're not really seeing from the other cast and you don't, you don't really see from like the Battle on Five cast either. You're right about the emotional piece, like the scenes where he is in the, uh, he's actually in the wormhole and he's talking to the prophets and they go back and forth between, they cut between Wolf 359 when he first meets Jennifer, uh, when he's playing baseball with Jake, all these different, you know, I guess, parts of his life, different times. Some of those scenes, his acting is like, it's just, it's, just, it's bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But at the same time, he makes up for it with some of the other scenes that are just over the top fantastic. So he, he's really, 
I yeah. mean, it, it, I think as the seasons go on, too, he starts to really get a grasp on what Cisco's yeah. supposed to be, and you see less of this. But for a pilot there's, episode, there's just really good small details too, like the kind of grin he gets when he realizes he's meet, you know, he actually is going to get to relive meeting Jennifer for the first time. Like, yes. that that whole scene is not necessarily well done, but like his facial expression and the in the moment when he realizes he can kind of enjoy this, or mm-hmm. just like that, and this gets talked about, I think, fairly often, and I think for good reason, but like the way that Avery Brooks is really physically affectionate with Ciroc Lofton, the actor playing his son, Jake, like it's just really touching to watch. The the cool thing about this episode that I've always liked has been that Picard shows up and he plays a huge piece in this. I mean, it really connects the two, the two series. Whoa, we're just going to keep on with the same timeline. We're all in the same place. Like enterprise exists the same time as DS nine. So the crew of the Enterprise is going out and having their adventures while the station is here and they're having whatever's going on here as well. And then I'm, I, forgive me about timeline, but this Voyager comes afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah. So Voyager yeah. takes over for Next Gen. So after Next Gen ends, because uh, this is during Next Gen season six. And then so you have one more season of Next Gen and then Voyager will start in what would have been season eight of Next Gen. So was this really the first time we've had two Star Trek yes. television shows on at the same time? Especially as we uh, ed- head to an era where we may have like ten Star Trek shows on at the same right, time, right? Right, but but for the first, yeah, this is the first time it's ever been like that. Like Picard and Cisco meeting for that meeting for that first time, so he can get the get his orders, feel the uh, the tension in that room. You can feel Cisco; he wants so bad to like destroy Picard at that point, you know, because <laughs> he's really the man who killed his wife. I mean, that, he's the reason she's dead. Yeah, but in yeah. Picard's just kind of oblivious to it because I, I mean, I don't know if how many memories he really has from when he was aboard, but I mean, he doesn't know. He specifically. Just two things I would say to tack on to that. One is, like, I think it's kind of notorious, especially in the early seasons of Next Gen, how much Patrick Stewart's acting like really overwhelms the rest of the Next Generation cast. And I mean, no, no you know, no shade yeah. on the Next Generation cast. But, like Patrick Stewart's just such a, you know, incredible classically trained actor. And you could see it going really poorly, like, you know, doing this kind of like passing the baton moment, but, you know, pitting this really great classically trained actor against uh, Avery Brooks, who I think, you know, was just most famous for doing like uh, a detective uh, series um, at this point. But like Avery Brooks really holds his own. He like really like, you know, it, the hostility doesn't feel like petty or unforced. And he, re- he really feels like an equal to Picard in a way I, I don't think you could just take for granted that would happen if you cast Patrick Stewart against your new lead. So I just think that's a, a really amazing scene in that sense that like both actors, even though they're very different styles and very different kind of emotional ranges, they just pull it off very well. And then the other scene with Picard is when he is saying goodbye to Chief O'Brien. Yeah. And yeah. They're going to, he's going to beam him down. I always had a, after rewatching this, I never really caught on, but I, I think it's weird that O'Brien goes on the, tele, on the teleporter platform and uh, Picard tells the, uh, whoever, I guess the other, the teleporter operator or whoever tells them to leave so that he can do it himself. I always thought that was so weird because does Picard really know how to use the teleporter like that? Is that just like a requirement? <laughs> like everybody has to know how to use it. And if that's the case, why do they have like, why was O'Brien so good at it? If anybody could pretty much like Picard just jumps in there. It's like, okay, pulls all three buttons down. 
<laughs> well, I mean, presumably this is like the easiest kind of teleportation, right? Like yeah. Just, it, it's not like you're trying to like pull someone off a, in a hostile situation with a lot of atmospheric and atmospheric interference. Yeah. It, it's, I just want to ask you about that uh, Cole Meany and uh, Patrick Stewart scene between Picard and O'Brien. Did that come off to you as like Picard was trying to be sentimental and O'Brien was just kind of like, well, sir, you know, it's just a job. I'll, you know, I'll go do my job somewhere else. Or did it, yeah, did, did it, it did come off to you that way? I felt like, okay, I felt like O'Brien, he first goes to try to talk to Picard, you know, at his, uh, in his office and the door shut or whatever and he can't go in. So he's just kind of like, eh, you know. Then he leaves and goes to the teleporter room. I think I think deep down, like O'Brien wanted to say his goodbyes and just kind of be like, "Okay, I'm you know, closing the book on my life right now. Like this is the end of this chapter." Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I think that was kind of what they were going for. And then Picard comes to find him, but it really I didn't feel like it was sentimental. I just felt like he was just like, "Oh yeah, I heard you coming by. Uh, see you later. Here, let me uh, let me let me beam you out." You I know? just felt like maybe Patrick Stewart was like <clears throat> emoting or expressing a little more like sentimentality in that scene than Cole Meany was and I wasn't I wasn't sure if that was intentional or if that was just how it came off but I I don't I don't know I I think I think you're right like it could just be that you know Chief O'Brien is a non-commissioned officer he doesn't feel like he can be as emotionally free with Captain Picard as Captain Picard can be yeah I felt like he just knew, like, it's like he wanted to make sure he said bye so that if he ever needed a reference, he could, like, it, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's what it was. That's what it felt like to me. Well, that, that, makes, it, that makes it sound just awful. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, O'Brien, out of all the characters on DS9, he's probably the most, like, blue-collar. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, totally, like, totally. So that, that fits. I mean, it fits his character. Well, it's it's right, also so, worth it's also worth noting just because we wound up talking about actors a lot more than I thought we would when we were planning, but I think that's good. But Cole Meany has probably had the most successful career of any of the DS9 cast. Um, may, may, maybe maybe uh, Rene Arbjone, who played Odo, you could argue for him, but Cole Meany just he's you know I think he he does a lot of Irish films, but he also shows up all over the place as a character actor, and I think he's had a really good post DS9 career, which is not often the case for Star Trek actors. And you know I think he kind of needs some recognition for being a, a good actor too, although not as showy as Avery Brooks or Patrick Stewart. You know, coming coming back to the char- talking about characters, um, you know this is the we're reintroduced to the Ferengi with DS9. Um, you know, if you look at Quark, what's your take on the whole? You know, anti-Semitic like thing with dealing with 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 Quark and the Ferengis. Like, what's what's your take on that? Yeah, yeah. So I I don't have a strong opinion on it, but I mean, it's just worth noting that like you know, I'm not sure if this was always the case in Next Generation, but with the Ferengi showed up. But in DS9, I think every talking Ferengi I think is played by a Jewish actor. And you could you could read with you know good justification if you wanted the Ferengi kind of characteristics and personalities as being very like extreme stereotypes of Jewish people and aspects of Jewish culture. And you you know you could argue I think with some reason that you could even you know think of it as anti-Semitic, um, which again I'm not I'm not really weighing down one way or the other is it or is it not anti-Semitic? But I do think it's kind of interesting that. Um, you have, I, I know you have a couple of Jewish writers, at least on staff of DS9, and again, like mostly Jewish actors playing the Ferengi. And then you, you turned up an interesting quote from Armin Shimmerman, who plays Quark, about it, right? 
Right. So in America, people ask, do the Ferengi represent Jews? In England, they're asked, do the Ferengi represent the Irish? In Australia, they ask, do the Ferengi represent the Chinese? The Ferengi represent the outcast. It's the person who lives among us that we don't fully understand. Yeah. And so, like, I, I think that's a really interesting and, like, provocative quote, and I like it. But I, I, I also want to disagree with it a little, because I think this kind of gets to, like, the specificity of anti-Semitism. Like, uh, anti-Semitism isn't always expressed in, like, the generic way that we think of, like, racial hatred or racial fear being expressed. It has a very sort of particular sort of register. And I think, like, the ways in which um, different uh, different people in the present and historically have been anti-Semitic is kind of different from the way that like Americans have uh, been anti-Black Americans or the English have been anti-Irish or anything like that. And, you know, because there, there's certain stereotypes about the the Jewish people that's allegedly like the threat within, um, you know, there's a strong um, relationship of Jewish people to commerce, which isn't often shared with other minorities. And I, I think like, you, I think if you watch DS9 in Germany or in Australia or in England or in North Africa, you would still find people who might identify like, you know, quote unquote, Jewish characteristics about the Ferengi. So in, in a way, I think that that quote, um, Armin Shimmerman makes is maybe a little limited in that sense. Although I think he is right that um, stereotypes about the Chinese, especially in South and East Asia, I think oftentimes are very similar to stereotypes about uh, Jews in the Americas and in Europe and in North Africa. So I, I think you, I think you can make an interesting conversation about like anti-Chinese and uh, anti-Semitic racism that can be that can be productive. I do think there's a lot to appreciate about the Ferengi performances. And like, there is there is a really great moment when um, Cisco is trying to blackmail Quark into staying on the station. And Quark has a really great set of lines. It's, it goes something to the effect of, uh, Commander, this provisional government is far too provisional for my taste. And in my experience, when governments fall, people like me are lined up and shot, which you could just read as like a sort of generic point about like Quark is a criminal, Quark is a is a wealthy outsider, Quark did, you know, had some cooperation with the Cardassian occupation, all of that might put him in danger in a if a chaotic situation arose on Bajor. But I think you could also read it as a kind of um, pathos-laden uh, reflection on like the ways that um, you know, Jews are often scapegoated during times of economic and political turmoil. So I don't know, I just, I, I thought that was really, really nice scene. Like, who would you say, like, would be the most, um, like, work of Babylon 5? I mean, I would definitely say Londo, although that that kind of problematizes our, our comparison of the Ferengi to images about Jewishness, right? Because usually... Um, Usually, you know, maybe especially before the 1940s, Jews are thought of as a stateless people, an international people, a cosmopolitan people, both in, in positive and in very negative senses. And, you know, Londo is still a representative of a, ga a galactic power, right? It's a galactic power that's like fallen on hard times. And so there's definitely like ways it's not a perfect comparison. Also, the fact, you know, Quark, even though Odo describes Quark as a gambler, I don't think we see Quark actually gambling very often in DS9. We tend to see him. I don't see him do it at all. Like, I don't, I don't know where that, I mean, he, he runs the establishment, but it's yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, he hosts it. Um, I, I think there may be 
some minor episodes where he he plays a game or something. I, I I can't say that for sure, but definitely the focus is on Quark as a host, as a you know a casino entrepreneur. Whereas the focus in what I've seen about on Babylon Five on Londo is very much Londo as a gambler, as this man of like broad sexual and alcoholic and ga gambling appetites, right? And so even though I think there's a a lot of similarities and they're kind of like in Quark and Londo's jovialness and their, you know, their kind of openness about their appetites and, you know, their, the fact that they're both very, uh, very clever characters. In, a, in other ways, there's some important differences. Did you want to weigh in more on that? Yeah. So since I haven't really seen too much Babylon 5, uh, I mean, maybe do, do all the Centauri act like Londo? I mean, are they all kind of like in that, have that, it's almost like buffoonish in a sense. It's hard to say because we, we, we see some other Centauri in what I've watched and none are quite like Londo, but I do like Londo is an individual, but I, I do think there is like a way in which I, I can't pin this down enough to my satisfaction, but I think there is a way that the writing does make Londo come across as like a sort of Centauri, you know, in the ways that the show imagines the Centauri as a as a people so the way he carries himself like it's just it's written a certain way yeah yeah is, I'm, I'm glad you framed the question like this because I, I don't know how much more i can say about it now but it'll be interesting to talk even in a, just a couple of episodes when we start getting introduced to jacquard and to uh, londo's uh, diplomatic aides it'll mm -hmm. be it'll be kind of interesting to see like how um how babylon 5 kind of handles different personalities of the same species, which I, I have to say now that I think about it, it's probably a strength Babylon 5 has over Star Trek. I think when Star Trek imagines an, an alien species, there tends to not be as much like personality variation within them. So thinking about the other differences between any of the characters, do you think that we kind of thought, we've hit a little bit on Sinclair and Cisco. What about Garibaldi and Odo, since they're both sort of the the head chief of security on, on their respective stations. I, I don't see much of a comparison there at all, honestly. Uh, well, I think fact, part of it would be, and this would get to another similarity between Quark and Londo, part of it's like the parallel relationship that Odo and uh, Quark and Londo and Garibaldi have. Although from what I've seen of uh, Babylon 5 and what I suspect about where it's going, I think, I think the Quark-Odo relationship maintains about the same where it seems like the Garibaldi and Londo relationship is going to go in very different angles. In the gathering, Garibaldi goes and gets, uh, he basically goes to retrieve uh, Londo so that he can be a part of the whole uh, meeting Ambassador Kosh. The, he doesn't want to come with him. There's that, there's that kind of back and forth between them. And yeah, you are right. I do, you do see a lot of that between Odo and Quark. Yeah, and I also think it's the kind of like, whereas Quark would say Odo is his friend and Londo would say Garibaldi is his friend, in both cases, the reverse would not be easily admitted, you know? This maybe doesn't come up as much in this these set of episodes we're looking at, but Garibaldi is a fairly alienated character in some ways. And it's not the same kind of alienation as Odo. You know, Odo's alienation has a lot more to do with his like difference from other people as a shapeshifter and his lack of knowledge about his origins. But there is a sort of similar kind of 
similar kind of alienation that both characters have. So that, that that's that's a, that's another similarity. But I, I don't think it's as tight a similarity as like you might could argue is between Londo and Quark, or even you, I think you'd raised a point which I had previously considered that you could see a fair number of similarities between Jakar and Ducat as these both mm-hmm. are just kind of these arch buffoonish villains. Two other quick points I want to make. Uh, one thing I think is really interesting that I, I didn't appreciate until we watched uh, these two things together, because I'd already seen both of them, although not for a long time in the case of Emissary. And that was like the importance of alien abduction as a theme, um, or at least time loss, which is oftentimes associated with alien abduction. So you have uh, Commander Sinclair, you know, relates to his uh, girlfriend about his experience on the Battle of the Line and the Earthman Bari War and how he lost a whole day. And when he gets it, when he comes back, the war is over. And then you have a you have a similar sort of effect uh, with Cisco getting uh, kidnapped by the wormhole aliens or by the prophets. And even though it's not exactly the same sort of issue with time, Cisco is having to deal with a temporal issue. He's having to work through both the, uh, the prophet's lack of understanding of linear time, and he's having to work through the fact that he's never let the death of his wife go. Um, so that, that sort of like, those are interesting comparison themes. And then it's even more interesting when you think about, um, X-Files premiered, uh, several months after these two episodes in September, 1993. And in the pilot to the X-Files, we established that the main character, Fox Mulder, you know, had this abduction experience in his past where his sister was taken. And I I think time was lost in that scenario too. And it's just an interesting sort of uh, tripartite comparison where you have uh, Cisco and Mulder fixed on these past traumas, the, you know, the death of your wife, the loss of your sister. And then you have in comparison to the much more just mysterious uh, loss that Sinclair has of like, he can't account for what happened, you know, during this whole day at the most. I, I don't, I don't know if that mystery is ever going to be answered, but I'm actually looking forward to finding out what happened. They did a good job, like building that, sus- that, that suspense right there. Just, even though it was yeah. kind of a little piece of, you know, the gathering, it yeah. was enough to make me go, okay, I really want, I really want to watch more because I just want to know what happened to this guy. That's a big part of season one, and we're we're gonna we're gonna learn more about that in season one. But then there, even though we'll learn more, there's still gonna be some things that are unanswered. And interestingly, there's one particular fact that it comes up in a comic book, but I don't know if it's ever actually spelled out in the series itself. I haven't gotten far enough to know, but it's an interest. There's like an interesting interesting fact there. So I, I don't want to say any more because I want you to kind of enjoy the mystery. Yeah, the comic book came out, I think, in 95, didn't it? I did some research like not too long ago about it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the, the first, uh, I think it's the first three or four issues of the comic are meant to bridge the first season and the second season. And they, they, they actually kind of speak to the transition of Sinclair away from Babylon 5, which, you know, spoiler, the, the right. actor had to step away. Yeah, so that's, they had to yeah. write him out. One last point of comparison to the X-Files too is I thought it was kind of interesting. We had in our talks beforehand sketched out some similarities between Kai Opaka, the Bajoran religious leader and Ambassador Delenn, the leader of the Minbari and how uh, you know they both kind of have this sort of mystical older woman role dispensing knowledge mm-hmm. to the protagonist. And 
I think it's also interesting that specifically with Ambassador Delenn in Babylon 5, she's actually very much like the uh, character Deep Throat from the X-Files too. Like she seems to clearly know more, partly related to the Mimbari being the oldest of the alien empires. So she seems to know more and she's carefully doling out um, information to Sinclair. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I just thought that was an interesting role. Right, and she seems to she seems to know like flat out why the uh, Minbari surrendered during the uh, the Earth Minbari War. Like she, they never go into detail about it yet, but you just have you, you have a sense that she knows that it was something strange. It was something like you know out there that we're not really sure why they just decided. Okay, yeah, you know, and we, to be we're a on the verge specific, of we're on the verge of winning. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just say to be a little more specific, it's the it's the reason why the Minbari surrender is explained in the comic, but I don't know if it's explained in the show. That's wow. Okay. That's a big tie in then. It answers that. Yeah. It it probably comes up later in the show, but it it hasn't come up to the point that I've gotten at. Yeah. Speaking back to the Lynn uh, and that whole, like the whole mysticism behind her, there was a scene and and we had talked about it before. You mentioned not bringing it up again, but I was going to anyway, because it's just (laughs) hilarious to me. The whole thing with the rings she goes into she opens like a magical closet or cabinet or something and there are rings in there and that blew my mind i'm like what on earth and she takes one down puts on her finger and then she's able to like control the gravity surrounding jakar and like manipulate it i thought it was like the weirdest thing and i don't know it, it, it almost didn't fit in with the rest of the show like when i'm watching i'm like this doesn't fit in this even there's all this other weird stuff going on this to me was like the one thing i'm like this doesn't seem right and after you talked to me about it, you said it probably doesn't come up again. I think I, I know why now, because it really doesn't fit. It's, it's too, it's almost too much mysticism at that point. It's too I, many I think, like weird powers. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I would slightly disagree with you. I, to what I've seen, I think mysticism is a much more palpable force in Babylon five from what I've seen than it is in Star Trek and even in DS9, which is the most mystical of the Star Treks. But I, I think the problem is not so much that the rings don't fit that that mystical theme. I just think it's really poorly done, which is why I don't think they go back to it. I mean, I might be wrong. Maybe like the very, the very oh, next episode after I stop watching, it comes back. But it was almost like Star Wars level mysticism at that point, like with the force, you know what I mean? Like it just felt like she had some really crazy power that she, someone shouldn't possess at that point. It was yeah. weird. Although I think you could explain it by, if you, if you really wanted to justify it, like, you know, it's, it's well established that the Minbari have technologies that the other races don't have access yeah. to. And, and that does explain too, while they were able to like, during the, during the war, they were able to just kind of, they were on the verge of winning because if they had that kind of technology, that's, that's too powerful, especially to have on a space station too. Like, I don't, I don't well, see how yeah. that's allowed. But, you know, like dust. dust wasn't allowed on there, but ring that can like alter gravity is okay. Well, that's yeah, the speaking of technology, motif on Babylon 5 is the ambassadors sneaking things onto the station. I mean, we see we see Delenn has done it with those rings. We see Jakar do it with, uh, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but with, you know, basically Jakar is letting the killer onto the station in this pilot movie. Um, we're going to see Londo has smuggled some stuff on in the very next episode. So interestingly like that, it's kind of funny because we were, I think we talked earlier about like the smuggling at the beginning yeah, it, of the it episode. It starts off, yeah, it yeah. starts off with like, like a scene from like, like 
customs at an airport almost, you know, where they're scanning people to make sure they have narcotics or weapons on their body on them when they come in. We talked a little bit about technology for a second there. I kind of want to move into that for a moment. Yeah, yeah. We can, uh, we can finish on that. Yeah, let's uh, the technology piece with both Babylon 5 and DS9, you can see that they're trying their best with what they have in the early 90s. You know what I mean? Like when you're watching yeah. it, you see 90s computers that are kind of trying to be masked as future tech, you know, and mm-hmm. you, you see the there's phasers and lasers and all these other like, you know, types of weapons that you, you, you only see in sci-fi. And then uh, strangely enough, the doors on both Babylon 5 and on DS9 are some of the strangest doors you'll see in any sci-fi shows. Like the way they open, the way that you just watch yeah. them. I mean, you maybe, maybe, I mean, I, maybe you haven't seen it, but it, just watch the next episode you watch. Just watch the doors. It is so weird. Uh, like they just can't have a regular door. It all has to like slide funny or go up at an angle. It's strange, but it was something that caught my eye. Um, yeah. What I would just say, it, it, it's especially strange on um, Babylon 5 because it's, you know, as I understand it, Babylon 5 was built by the Earth Alliance, it was built by humans. And so you would expect it to be kind of like within human aesthetic standards. Yes. Whereas the point, obviously the point on DS9 is it's Cardassian architecture. It's, it is supposed to kind of seem a little off-putting, a little strange. to the And that's humans. very, and that's very, that's actually built into the plot itself too. Yeah, like the computer yeah. systems are unable to use them. You know, because they are Cardassian tech, and that that just that does make sense. One other point uh, I can't fully uh, I can't fully spell out now, but I'll, I'll look for is I think it's a kind of common trope in science fiction, like especially like science like written science fiction novels and short stories, to use doors as kind of like a suggestive thing about like how advanced the technology is. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think there's um, an essay by uh, Samuel Delaney, who's a great um, Afrofuturist writer. Um, he, he's still alive, but he, he's, his most famous work was in the 60s and the 70s. And I think he has an essay where he sort of talks about like the various way doors are described. It's, it's not the main point of the essay, but it's just something that comes up in his reflections on like science fiction and language. So I'll, I'll see if I can run that, run that bit of that essay down for our next episode. And we maybe talk about the doors a little well, more. Then. Some, some research you did do for me though, that I appreciate is that you found out the actual uh, size of Babylon five and DS nine, because, and I think I was actually right. Cause I think Babylon five is way bigger than DS nine. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you were you were really stressing that in your in your kind of subjective impressions, and I I think I agreed with you, but I did I don't think I realized like quite yeah, I didn't re- grasp the difference of the scale. Yeah, because Babylon Five is like yeah. vastly vastly bigger than DS9. It's five miles long, and then DS9 is not even a mile long. It's like what point nine. So that that's, that's just a huge size difference. Because the main thing that threw me off was the with the monorail system or whatever the yeah, rail system that yeah. they were taking. I was like, if you have one of those, you've got to you've got to have at least a mile you know a mile span to have something running through your station like that. Yeah, uh, and then the other impressive disparity that is that what the numbers I found like on the various memory alphas and Project Babylons was that Babylon Five can hold two hundred fifty thousand total people, whereas DS 9s total population is just seven thousand. So, uh, looking into the our next episode, what do you think? What uh, what what are we covering? So we're going to cover the first proper episode of Babylon Five, which is uh, Midnight on the Firing Line, and then we're going to cover. 
um, the third episode of Deep Space Nine season one, uh, past prologue, which uh, introduces one of the best characters on DS9, uh, Elam Garrick, the humble Cardassian tailor. So uh, a lot to look forward to there. And I think the general outline of how we're going to go forward is we're going to try and hit select episodes of season one and two of Deep Space Nine. And we're going to try and pair them with episodes from season one of Babylon 5. And that way we'll finish season one of Babylon 5 and season two of DS9 at about the same time. And then we'll commence uh, on season three of DS9 and season two of Babylon 5 at about the same time. We'll have a list uh, up for folks to consult about what we'll do in the future. And what's, what's the reasoning for that? Um, I think the reasoning is partly just reasons of symmetry. There's, I think, about 40 more episodes of um, DS9 than Babylon 5. It's partially for reasons of quality. Um, there's... I'm thinking of some DS9 episodes that, yeah, we probably don't need to... Yeah, yeah, we don't we don't really need to revisit Rumpelstiltskin or the uh, <laughs> if, if wishes were horses um, episode. Um, partly, it's for reasons of plot structure because I think I, I don't think it's going to match very well, but I, I do think that you're at a similar point. Um, at the start of season two of Babylon Five and the start of season three of DS9, not a perfectly similar point, but you're at a, a broadly comparable point. Um, so yeah, it's partly just for reasons of plot symmetry. And yeah, like I will, we'll see how long we keep the podcast going, but yeah, if it comes down to it, we'll, we'll finish season six of DS9 and season five, the final season of Babylon 5 together. And then for the final season of Deep Space Nine, we can pair that with some of the TV movies and the, the spinoff show that had an aborted first season called Crusade. So that's that's kind of how we can move forward. Sounds good. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Yeah, really enjoying this. Looking forward to uh, rejoining you and our listeners in a couple days and talking uh, Midnight on the Firing Line and uh, Past as Prologue. I'll see you then, Matt. All right. Till then. Thanks.